Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Podventure 3, Episode 3. This is Cruising for Coos. So, so far, we've talked about the vehicle that we're using to get to Arizona. We've talked mm-hmm. about the Do you want gang- to talk more about vehicles? No, 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 no. Yeah, Jim, you always want to talk about vehicles. <laughs> we've talked We've talked about the game we're going to be pursuing, the coos deer, possibly mule deer as well. The tag isn't either tag, so we might, you know, it depends on what we encounter, but I think we're predominantly uh, speculating we'll encounter coos deer. And now we're going to talk a little bit about shooting our bows at longer distances, essentially extending our effective range. We're going to be out and west. Also working on accuracy and accuracy, all those things. You know? uh, yeah, the, the equipment itself, best practices for shooting, shooting techniques, getting your arrows set up properly. Pretty much everything that a person would want to take into consideration to shoot their uh, their bow effectively at long range, which is, you know, going to be probably something that's, you know, defined by the individual ultimately. Got Jimmy to my right, sitting across from us, Evan Williams from Hoyt. Now, I, I feel like our knowing of Evan is almost like a little bit of a, a storied history. I met Evan for the first time. Uh, we were doing a photo shoot out in Colorado. Uh, Aaron Snyder from, uh, Snyder from Kafara was helping us out. He knew Evan. Evan was one of our models. And I think if you're watching on YouTube, you can see how damn good looking this guy is. There, we, I said it. We it's use out there. that model term very, very loosely. <laughs> you know what? Because our models are legit hardcore hunters. That's, that's what, the truth. And that's what we have across from us. Now, your brother, Jim, lightweight Dave, yeah, actually knows Evan Evan's kind of one as of those, well. He's kind of one of those small world guys where yeah, yep. you just get talking and then casually you bring up, oh, and then I was out with this person and then all of a sudden, wait, you know that person? I know that person. Yeah. Wait, and that person knows this person. I know that person. And it's crazy. Yeah. Spiderweb's out. He used, and he used to work on your brother's bows. Yeah. Crazy stuff. So, Evan, welcome to the podcast. It's your first episode on here. So, First off, we got to have you intro yourself to the listeners out there. For those who haven't heard you before ever or seen you before in anything, who are you, what do you do, all that fun stuff. Um, so, yes, I grew up in south central Nebraska, northwest Kansas, got my degree in Kansas City, and that actually, with my athletic background, took me to Colorado Springs to the Olympic Train Center, where I actually started to get into the outdoor industry as a uh, career. Um, so I had some tech background when I was down in Mississippi, kind of started there in a shop as a bow tech, optics salesman, rifle salesman, clothing, kind of jack of all trades, if you will, and got the opportunity to move to Colorado and need a part-time job or two to cover expenses as an off-complex facility use athlete at the OTC. So I started working at Sportsman's Warehouse in the footwear department, picked up a part-time job at the local archery shop there in Colorado Springs, and within a couple months, that turned into the potential for a full-time gig and ended up putting the, the athletic career away and started full-time in the industry as a sales and tech and janitorial services specialist <laughs> and uh, was there running wow. shops for almost eight years and then got the call from Hoyt to come out and interview for a job within the marketing team and started out in the PR and business development side. So I was working with freelance writers and editors within the industry, also working with our in-house marketing coordinator getting our booths ready for all of our events and traveling and coordinating product and and doing all of our product launch videos um, with my background in sales and, and the retail side with our products. And 
Uh, six months into that, our pro staff manager left for another job, and they pulled me in and said, you're, you're kind of in a position where you know our equipment, you know a lot of our shooters, we'd like to pull you into this role with the company, and, and kind of here's the general description of what you're going to be doing, and is this something you're interested in, or do you want to stay where you're at? And really didn't want to stay where I was at, because if you have the potential to move up, especially six months with a company, you take it. So I've been the, the pro staff manager with Hoyt Archery now for almost four years. Right on. Awesome, so, man. How does that, does that janitorial experience ever come into play anymore? It, it that... still does from time to time, but mainly when it comes to the uh, the wife's honeydew list. Got it. <laughs> so, got it. Okay. All yeah. right. That's a, that's a great thing to have on the resume. Yeah, it really is. So <laughs> turn turn some heads most of the time. Yeah, I'm sure it does. So, I'm sure it does. That's actually the, the, the top thing on mine, Jim. I lead with that. Oh, okay. Good. Hey, is that you... also on your Tinder profile? <laughs> <laughs> Match.com. Yep, yep. Now, uh, one thing we should probably note is that most of what we'll be discussing, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see uh, Mark's, what, what I call, PRS bell here in front of us. Uh, it is a Hoyt. And uh, that's probably the primary platform of discussion here today. Not that you can't increase your effective range and become accurate, uh, more and more accurate with a trad bow like I'm using. Of course, you, of course, you certainly can. But obviously, Evan's area of expertise is in these style of things. We'll probably, we'll probably keep more to that. So I'll Absolutely. just keep doing my Legolas thing over here. Legolas, Legolas. Yeah. Pull and pray. so what's what's the best place to start when somebody is let's say at this point we're going to assume maybe somebody already has a bow and they've shot a little bit sort of recreationally just kind of for fun plinking if you will i don't know if the do the archers call it plinking what do you call it if you're just sort of plinking i would let's just go with it yeah yeah and uh but now they they really want to take it more seriously they want to dive in they want to make sure that they're shooting more accurately and this this could relate just before we started recording evan you said you said something about this could relate to your average whitetail guy who doesn't really ever think they're going to be shooting much beyond 30 yards for example uh, or it could relate to somebody who's consistently hunting out west or somebody like us who's, who's thinking about hunting out west where the landscape lends itself to possibly needing to take a little bit longer poke you know of course hopefully hopefully that you're you're comfortable in doing so and accurate and all those things but where where does one start? Is it is it in the bow setup? Is it in the practice? The regimen that they what's so so I would tell you first off is is get to your local pro shop, have them look over your bow. Age of strings is going to be a major factor when it comes to stretching things, moving, um, making sure your bow is still within manufacturer specs. That way you're getting the most out of your equipment um, when it comes to speed and especially the efficiency of the design. A lot of guys tend to have a bow for five, six, seven years, never change out strings and cables. So a bow mm-hmm. like the RX3 that comes out, you know, manufacturer specs on it are 30 and a half inches axle axle, a six inch brace height. It should be shooting in perfect world at an ATA spec or, or IBO for a lot of manufacturers at 342 feet per second. If that bow is three, four, five years old, still has the original strings and cables, it's been under that load that tension that's on the limbs for that entire life so things do move they don't necessarily stretch but when you think about your cam design the track on your cam is designed with a certain width so let's say it's a thousandth wide okay Mm -hmm. once you have your strings built and then you go and serve that material you might have added enough serving that instead of it being a thousandth it's 112 
So it's actually thicker or wider than that track is. So we have to pinch the serving down to fully seat the string and cable into the track of our cam. Over time, as it seats, it settles and brings that bow to where it's going to live for most of its life with the quality of strings and cables out there. If you've never had it rechecked, synced, timed, whatever phrase you like to use there, then chances are your cam timing is going to be off. And so you are losing productivity or efficiency out of that system because you could have top hitting first, bottom hitting first. And I personally like to advance my top in a cam and a half system to kind of even out the load balance on the cables. But if the bottom hits first, it changes how that string is shot. Yeah. So therefore your, your knocking position could be low could be high depending on how that arrow is coming off the string this is so cool so, we're talking about cams advancing timing knocking this is an automotive podcast you mm-hmm. might get into compound bows jim <laughs> <laughs> so. oh man that's that's pretty wild it totally makes sense and when you see like this bow is sitting here right now for example i mean everything is under tension mm-hmm. essentially at this point. Yep, yep. you're and under so, what do we say you you have 60 pound limbs mm-hmm. so effectively the way our limbs are designed is you're probably sitting between 61 and a half and 62 and a half pounds at static load. Okay. So that whole time it's putting tension outward, which is then taking that serving into your cam. The more you shoot it, the quicker that happens because you're now increasing the potential and stored energy. When you shoot that the string coming into those cams helps them seat quicker. So the quicker you shoot, the quicker that quote-unquote break-in period is for those cables to seat into your cams, the quicker you can go back to your bow shop, get it retuned and resynced, and you'll be good to go. Oh, so it's so what you discuss is almost like a break-in period right off the bat after you get a new bow? Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. So what I typically do is when I'll put a new set of strings and cables on one of my bows, um, I've got a press down in my garage. I'll put it on my drawboard. I'll let it sit for 12 to 24 hours just to put it under load because when you get to full draw – you've got more load, more weight put into your cables. Your string is essentially almost slack with the Hmm. way they're designed. So you can get up there and you can move it around, do things there that you wouldn't think is possible because of, well, now I'm at full draw, I'm heavier, right? Your cables are what's actually taking the majority of that load. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to settle those cables. And with today's materials and the way manufacturers are building them, I might see a 16th of an inch of movement in that 12 to 24 hour period. And where I'm getting new product from Hoyt, typically two to three days before I leave for my November hunts, I can use that. I don't have to shoot it as long, typically within 20 shots. I'm set up. I've got broadheads rolling. I've got tape built to my, my max practice distance and I'm already shooting broadheads and, and finalizing everything, getting ready to go a day later. Wow. So, so by doing that, are you kind of, uh, accelerating that break-in period mm-hmm. by doing it that way? Yep. Okay. Yep. If you didn't have those things, how long would you say like a typical break-in period is? Um, or how many shots per se, maybe? Yeah. 300 or so, I would say, roughly. Okay. Hmm. So, and that, you know, for some guys, that's three days. For some guys, that's three months. It all depends on how much you're shooting. Right. Yeah. So, but what I found is is having that press in my garage and just being able to put it under load for a longer period of time... I can put a peep in the day after that comes off the press right away, sight in, 
I never have to touch that bow. Is again. this a specific archery press, or are you just talking about like a ten ton like press, like a regular shot I, press? I use the Last Chance Archery. They're made down in Georgia. Okay. Um, so it's the one I have is one of their deluxe models, so I can actually tilt it, so I can do bow at full draw, under load, working my third axis, as well as it's got a draw board, so I can put on that press, put under load, shut my door, lock it, so the kids don't go in and mess with anything. No one has to even know it's in there, and and hmm. good to go. So, can we real quick go into the anatomy of a compound bow? I don't. I, that might be like maybe too elementary for some people, but for me, I'm thinking of like we're talking about. Obviously, I I, I know what the cams are. Like I can see them visually, mm-hmm. but there's like you just said third axis. There's a difference between string and cable, Correct. which I never realized actually. Mm-hmm. To, to be honest with you. How does that? How does that all work? And then you have your your limbs and your which parts which? Yeah. So you have top and bottom limbs. You have your riser, um, which is where your grip and everything is going to mount. And then okay. we have a cam and a half system. So we actually have string and we have two different types of cables. Um, string or shoot string is obviously where you're going to tie your peep into. It's going to be where your arrow knocks. So therefore, that's where your D loop is at. Okay. Yeah. Um, with the cam and a half system, we run a bus and a control cable. Um, the control cable is going to be your harness that's going to basically connect your cams together, um, which is going to be this one here, which is on the outside of the bow. Um, okay. So it connects cam outside to cam, underneath, yeah, and then over the top. Yeah, okay. Okay. And then we run a split yoke or a bus system, which is going to split on your top, okay, hence the, hence the Y yoke, and then it's going to be the inner cable, Closer to the the shooter, mm-hmm. and then it's going to go down, and it connects to your lower cam. So it only connects to one cam, and your upper limbs. Um, so if you have any left right tuning issues, that's where you could do what they call yoke tuning. So depending on if you're throwing a left tear or right tear, you could potentially twist one side or the other to tune that arrow to walk out of tune. The unique hmm. thing about our our carbon redworks lines is we also now have our custom-tuned grip. So the grip on this, it's a little bit thicker. You notice that at the base of it, there is an Allen screw set. Mm -hmm. If you pull that out, you can take that grip and roll it off, and there's a plate underneath there that allows us to move that grip placement 50 thousandths left or 50 thousandths right of center to also have an alternate adjustment. So if you're throwing a left or right tear, before you go to a yoke tune or before you even move your rest and now either either bump a fixed blade broadhead into your shelf or bring your veins closer to contacting your cables, mm-hmm. you can shift that grip first and then replace it, walk part of that tune out, and then go to cables and then so, last resort, third resort, you could touch that rest if you had to. So, so just, would the grip be your first go-to grip would be my first go-to and just changing the grip can actually change how your arrows are flying yep because it's what it's going to do is it's going to shift that grip 50 thousandths left or right Mm -hmm. which is going to change my input or my pressure into the system because of the angle that my hand is coming in yeah yeah and i've and i've seen it shift it over a half inch just in that 50 thou shift Wow. Oh so we, we run a dealer school or a series of dealer schools every year to train our pro shop technicians and owners in the capabilities of our equipment, why we design them the way we do. And one of the dealer groups we had in last year, we had a whole section just on, hey, we're going to take this bow and here's some arrows. We're going to have you guys shoot it. And then we're going to walk you through 
the new way to tune these because it's a it's a brand new grip system that a lot of our dealers weren't quite sure how to do it because they'd never gotten to deal with something like that. They'd, they'd have a rest option and they'd have the split yoke option. Mm-hmm. So it's okay, we're going to do a, a quick retraining. Here's your shot. Okay, you are throwing a three-quarter inch left tear. Before we go to a rest, because that's where most people are going to go, left tear, I'm going to shift that rest in. Well, the problem is, especially for the Western guys who are mostly going to run a fixed blade if they're doing big games such as moose or bear or elk, the closer you bring that rest in to the right for a right-handed shooter, you now bring that broadhead into your shelf. I'm a shorter draw-length guy. I shoot about 28 inches. I like a shorter arrow. As I cut my arrow down, I stiffen my spine. Mm-hmm. I decrease the weight so I gain some speed, which also brings my broadhead into my shelf completely. Yep. Mm. So I was like, okay, go to the grip first, three-quarter inch left tear, shifted that grip, and we almost cleaned it up just moving its grip. And when you're talking about like a left tear, for example, you're talking about this is this is the stuff you see when you're paper tuning, right? Correct. And yep. so you would shoot an arrow into a target, and then you're finding that instead of the arrow making like a clean hole punch right through the paper, it's it's actually sort of shredding it a little bit to the left or to the right. Correct. And you read it from the back end or the vein side of the arrow. So mm-hmm. if the back end of my arrow is to the left of where my point is going through, that's a left tear. If it's on the right-hand side, it's a right tear. Hmm. And then... On a left tear, you can either move the grip, you can move the rest inside, or you can twist the left yoke and increase tension. And so you're actually going to take your cam from straight vertical, and I'm going to lean it into the riser, Hmm. which will bring that left tear back into center. And you could potentially still be hitting the center of the bullseye, so to speak, but having one of these left or right tears, right? Sure, absolutely. And what does that mean? Because I guess, like, I'm thinking, well, if I'm hitting the bullseye... What difference does it make? So, and a lot of times what you're going to see that is with feel points. Okay. Arrow's going to come out, kick. There's nothing to physically steer up front. You have more veins in the back than you have surface area for disruption up front. Mm -hmm. So your veins are able to control and help stabilize over distance. But as you would walk that back, what you would see is arrow paradox coming into play by how those veins are correcting. At your first initial shots at 10 yards, you might be to the right. Well, you correct that. Now I'm dead center. I go back to 20, and now I'm to the left. So I correct it a little bit more. Okay, I think I'm on. I step back to 30. Now I'm back to the left because your arrow is doing this going down range trying to correct. Oh, okay. So that's where walk-back tuning comes into play. You basically have a straight vertical line, and my goal is to just walk back, and I'm just making small adjustments with my rest or with a tune, not necessarily my sight, to bring everything down into my line as I get further and further away. Gotcha. So you got mm-hmm. a vertical line on the target, mm-hmm. maybe like a piece of tape or something like yep, that. Yep, blue painter's tape, Okay. works perfect. Okay. Very interesting. And that whole process is literally just to, you're not sighting in your bow per se. Nope, not at all. Yep, because yep, um, I like to do it on a four-foot block, and I'll start at five feet and just make a couple adjustments. And this is after I've, I've paper-tuned. So let's say I've paper tuned and I've got a perfect bullet hole or to my eye, it's perfect. Yeah. As I walk back, there can be slight impurities as to how that paper was sitting. If your tension wasn't exactly the same or maybe there was a crease somewhere in the paper Mm -hmm. that I can potentially have the slightest tear that your visual eye won't see. Mm -hmm. I like a four vein setup. So sometimes that can give a weird look. 
mm-hmm. get close, and now I'm walking back, and I'm just making slight adjustments to the rest as I'm going back and just pulling everything back to my center line. Hmm. Gotcha. So, do you have gotcha. to get like precision paper or something like that for your paper tuning? Because it's not, I I had no idea that even a crease in the paper or slightly the way that you have tension on the paper that that could even. Um, the heavier you get the less clean I typically tend to see those. Like if you go a butcher paper, mm-hmm. you're going to create more tearing trying to get through it. So you want yeah, a little fair. bit lighter paper, but I do believe you can go too light. If you go too light, um, like one thing I like to do to make sure that my veins are going to stay on my arrow is I not only do the main base, but then I tip the front and the back. With because, glue. Yeah, with glue. Because if I go through an animal, I don't want hide or bone or something to get underneath and rip a vein off. Hmm. So by tipping the front and the back, I'd create a small barrier over the tip of that mm-hmm. to help, especially with, with penetration and going all the way through and not ripping off an animal. Oh, okay. Same thing with paper. If you have an edge that's sticking up on that vein, as it's going through, it could potentially grab part of that tear as the hole is exposed right. and throw off what you're physically seeing. Same thing with a bear shaft. Sometimes those are hard to read because you don't have any veins on it at all. Yeah. So, right. Right. So most of the time when I've done what they call bear shaft tuning, I've already shot my veins through paper. I've probably done my walk back or I'm going straight to a bear shaft tune where I'm throwing a bear shaft and a fletched one down together mm-hmm. and then doing the same thing I would on a walk back tune where I'm just moving the rest a little bit back and forth just to bring those two together a little bit. Man. This is our man. We we we're only twenty two minutes in. I'm already just baffled by and, all this. And stuff. we're not. We're just to paper tuning. We're just to paper tuning. But it really is. It really is pretty amazing. Because to even think about the fact that we're discussing all these things that you know will increase your accuracy and precision. I mean, literally, we're talking about precision at yep. this point in time. Um, there's there's truly when you think about it. Because I know you guys have a huge segment of your market that is military, tactical, long-range shooting, stuff like that. Yeah. There's truly no fundamental difference between long-range rifle shooting, whether you're just an amateur out having fun, wanting to shoot 1,000 yards, or the guys that are competing in the 1,000-plus doer events and and the long-range, you know, mile-plus type events. Mm -hmm. It's the same premise with long-range bow shooting. It's all about you and your connection to your equipment. Mm -hmm. There's probably a little bit more involved on our side when it comes to the things that can go wrong or the things that you need to look out for because we yeah. physically have more moving parts. But your your arrow is no different than you sitting at home with your reloader. Okay, well, here's, here's you know, this grain load with this amount of point weight and this is the speed I'm doing and this is the group I'm shooting at, at 500. Okay, well, let's go an extra 10 grains of powder and let's put an extra 50 grains up front Okay, that dropped my my muzzle velocity to this. So you know, this is, did this to my group, or I throw a whole new barrel on. Yeah. Okay. What's my twist rate? Things like that. So. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, even the the fact that we're discussing and you, you brought up like just how much tension is being put on, like when you move the grip, tension's being pushed a little bit from your arm angle, a little bit to the left, or a little bit to the right. It really goes into one of the things I've heard so much about archery and bow shooting which is consistency Mm -hmm. because you set all these things up and I'd imagine it's probably really hard to set up a bow if the person shooting isn't very consistent in what they're doing. Right. Absolutely. Because then you're just chasing a moving target because it's like, well, we could change the bow to work when you're shooting it this way. But if you start shooting it that way, then we have to do it entirely differently. The, The slightest, the slightest shift in grip pressure, a thousandth 
of an inch will potentially change what you're going to see coming out of that bow. That's amazing. So, so a lot of times, as as a new archer coming in, when we were setting bows up, we as shop techs were shooting and tuning them. We may or may not take that consumer out and have them shoot through paper. Mm-hmm. Because if they haven't done this before, or they haven't done it in a number of years and they're getting back into it, let's just have you go out. Let's put you at 20 yards. Let's get you back into what we call shooting shape. So building that that muscular endurance, building the muscle memory with, okay, this is where my anchor is. This is where my nose goes. You know, elbow is here. Okay, well, my shoulder is off this shot, but it's, okay, no, that's correct. There's so much physicality that's built into it that those changes day to day to day out of a a new archer are going to affect it. But if you are putting the time in every single day, you're going to learn your body and what's comfortable. Then you go back into that shop and a lot of them will tell you, you know, come back in three months, six months, whenever, here's a, here's a card. We're going to give you free range time, come in and use it, especially during the winter. We've got leagues, shoot your bow a lot. Let's build you as the foundation and then let's go back and revisit this tune. And it'll be on us. We want this to be right for you, but we need to get you and the bow working together as best as possible. Yeah. Because otherwise you end up like somebody like Mark with your old uh, one-shot groups. I'm going to call you out here, Mark. Sorry. but uh, It's the shot that counts, Jim. It's the shot that counts. Well, hey, in in real world, yes, I agree. One cold shot every day. That's all you get. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, if you are, you know, we always talk about like the three-shot group when you're uh, zeroing in a rifle. It's a similar case in that, you know, if you go and you take one shot and you're like, ah, well... I was aiming at the bullseye, but, you know, I ended up hitting a little bit low and left. I'll just adjust up and right real quick. And then you shoot again, and then now your impact is high and left. You're like, oh, crap, that's weird. Okay, let me move down and right. And then you shoot again. It's like, wait, now I'm way down and to the right. So it's like, I got to go back up and left again. If you're just doing that, you can't tell if it's you, if it's the gun, if it's, you know, the ammo, if it's the whatever. Wind, the wind, change directions. Yeah. So, Absolutely. you know, when you actually set up some form of consistency, whether it's you as the shooter or your equipment or something like that, that's happen, happening consistently, then even if you're missing a little bit, you can say, okay, at least I've shot many, many times and, and I've, I'm consistently missing, you know, yeah. or, or oh, yeah. I'm consistently not hitting exactly where I want to. That's probably the point at which you can say, all right, now it's time to, to dial and, this thing And in. look into an app tracker for your arrows. There, there's ones that you can actually have a target graph, and you just walk up, some of you just take a picture of your arrows, and it'll plot them on a graph for you. Or you just sit there and go, okay, that shot's here, this shot's at 12 o'clock, this shot's at 11, shot's at 3, okay. Mm-hmm. And then over time, it will show you your plot. Well, okay, I only have a couple arrows at it at 3 o'clock, but I have enough consistency there. Which arrow is doing it? Did I mark my arrows? Is it a consistent arrow that's always flowing? Maybe I have something off there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, bulk my group is up here at, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Okay, let's move it, and then let's figure out why these are over here. Sometimes you have a flyer arrow. Yep, yep. So, you mark all your arrows? Yep, I do. What do you use to do that? Just a pen? Um, I use a black Sharpie on my practice ones, and mm-hmm. it's a red Sharpie on my hunting ones. Okay. Um, so when I, when I get a brand-new dozen arrows... I build six of them, and typically I, I do a different color than my hunting ones. Okay. So, like, my practice ones right now are, are green wraps, green veins. Um, my hunting ones this year were yellow wraps, yellow veins, and then um, I built a bow mid-season to do some testing and went white wraps, white veins, which 
worked out real good in a blizzard. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I always, I always have a full dozen arrows and they're all built the same. So the, the wraps are from the same company. So I know the weights are the same. Hmm. The veins are from the same manufacturer on the same jig with the same glue. And I've got, I've got my grain scale there and I'm super, super anal about how close everything is to, I'm weighing my field points. And if I've got three quarters of a grain difference between them, I have them listed out lightest to heaviest, and then I light out my arrows heaviest to lightest, and I start matching up. Most of my arrows when I build them are within a half to three quarters of a grain. The parallels yes. to reloading, yeah, like you, you said, and long range shooting true. are mm-hmm. it really Here is I uncanny. The reloaders were the only nerds out there that <laughs> I just, just like, man, what a bunch of weirdos in their basement. But oh yeah, and and it's funny because when the Ulmer Edge broadhead came out a couple years ago. Um, they actually have a locking screw, an Allen that goes into the broadhead through the vein, through the uh, blades, so they don't deploy. So you can practice with the actual head. Oh, nice! Remove yep. that set screw, put your band back on. Hmm. Your blades have been in the body of that ferrule the entire time, never exposed. So you could physically be shooting the exact same head that you were practicing with. Huh. That Allen screw weighed a grain and a half. I was just about to ask you how much that Allen yep, screw a weighed. A grain and a half, Randy. When he was using that, I sight in for about an about an inch and a half low. Right. Okay. Because right. when he takes it out, he's going to pick up some speed. Yeah, you take it out a little weight. It's dead on. Yeah. But an inch yeah. and a half, though. At, like, a, at 100 yards, yep. With, and how many? A grain and a half. A grain and a half. Can we also talk about the fact that we're talking about an inch and a half at 100 yards with a bow? Right. Is 100 yards, like, in archery world, like the 1,000-yard mark in the shooting world? I don't know. Not um, impossible, but a cool milestone to reach. I don't know that I go with a thousand, but yeah, it's. I mean, there's there's a lot more guys doing it now, especially with movable sights, um, yep. whether it's yeah. single pin, three pin, five pin, whatever your your quote unquote poison is. There, it's something that we're starting to see much more of, which I'm sure is the same in the long range industry, because of the quality of the gear and the equipment yep. that's being produced by manufacturers. And yeah, and a lot of these guys, Lilger or Hart barrels, or you know, I'm going to go with. Christensen arms and, and I'm going to take this and this and you know I'm going to pillar bed and I'm going to glass bed and archery you can geek out just as much yeah what what vein okay talk about FOC how much front of center do I want to run what kind of percentage is there a difference between 11 versus 13 versus 15 versus I wonder if I can hit 20 and what does that do and and again the ballistics characteristics of arrows the longer the arrow the, the weaker the spine the shorter I go the stiffer I become mm-hmm. so when I was getting into it with my draw length and where speeds from manufacturers were coming, which was around that 320 foot per second mark, which we look at now and go, well, that's slow. Well, I was <laughs> able to take a 400 spine arrow and the first couple uh, Mueller setups I built for long range shooting, it's like 343, 346 grains. Okay. It's almost unheard of because that's so light. There is so much outside and environmental factors that can come into that. If I have a five mile an hour wind at a hundred yards with a three hundred and forty grain arrow, I'm holding a foot, foot and a half off hmm. easily with a five mile an hour wind. Wow. I've never hunted my home state of Kansas with a five mile an hour wind. I wish I could. <laughs> right. So the last two of the last three bucks I've killed out there was twenty to thirty plus gusts. Okay. So Yeah, that's a doozy. Yeah. So, what, what you think does it get gusty down in Arizona? 
Is that a totally naive question to ask? I don't know. I mean, I think it could be anything, man. I, re- I really think you'll encounter. I mean, it's it's the West. It's it, generally windy. Well, and especially this time of year when you've got weather systems moving in and out. Right. Chances are, I think the end of December, January, you'd see more of that, more yeah. more switching going on, especially the switching. Thermals changing, changing winds. Right. You're, you're talking, what we were talking earlier, it's, it's freezing at night. So 28, 30 degrees, you're coming up to frost. Middle of the day, you're talking... 50s, up upper fifties, yeah. low sixties. Yeah. I mean, that's a big temperature shift. Something's got to. So. Something's got to move around. Yep. Well, let's talk about. So we we talked a little bit about you know the equipment, and I guess if a person does want, to, you know, you talked about sliding sites, movable sites. Like I said, the equipment nowadays it's really astonishing. Mm-hmm. Like the technology, the materials, you know, the repeatability. Right. I mean, just like a turret on a rifle scope needs to track this site that I have on here needs to track and be repeatable. So, I mean, maybe let's let's go into some of the, uh, I guess, the tools of the trade, you know, if you do want to be able to, you know, execute shots at these extended ranges. So so the first thing, talking sites, um, that's going to be, the, in my opinion, one of the more critical aspects when it comes to long-distance shooting, especially when you start putting angles into effect. Um, so you want to make sure you have a site that has a second and third axis adjustment angle. Mm-hmm. Um, so second axis is going to be as if we're standing on this table shooting flat. So what that site is going to do is that site is going to adjust along the horizontal axis to level or bubble out the bow. Okay. So okay. if you have a machined riser or a plate on your bow for your sight mount that was machined at a bad angle, mm-hmm. you can now come in and adjust for that. Okay. 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 Gotcha. Your third axis is going to be when we start talking a vertical angle. Whitetail hunters especially listen to this part. A lot of guys like to get high in trees. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Hunting western mule deer, you want to come in from above. Okay. Tree stand, 15 to 20 feet. I'm coming up and over the top. I could be 15 to 20 feet. I could be 50 yards above an animal. Mm-hmm. So your third axis is going to be when we start talking about taking that sight and coming down or having to shoot up mm-hmm. on an angle of inclination. Right. Uh. So basically think about it as this water bottle. And if we can get this off of here real quick, you can okay. see you can see there's a bubble in here. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So when I come to full draw, as I rotate up or I rotate down, I'm not changing the level of that water bottle at all. But you can see how that bubble is going to run to one side or the other. Right. So essentially what we're going to do with that site is we're going to take its 90-degree plane and we're going to adjust it away or towards the shooter, left or right dependent, Mm -hmm. for that angle. So now as I go uphill or downhill, I've adjusted that third axis angle where the bubble stays in the middle up or downhill. Oh, okay. So this is something I thought when you were talking about shooting up and downhill, I thought, you know, we were going to have the old discussion where it's like, oh, well, you know, there's like the angle and you got to shoot at the distance that's linear from you oh, to right. the animal. You know, I thought that's that's where I thought this was going. But actually, this is this is even just getting level. This is just leveling out your sight. Wow. Because let's say, let's say I'm in a 20-foot tree stand mm-hmm. and I'm trying to make a 21-yard shot. Mm-hmm. Okay, I come to full draw and I come down on that animal. If I have a sight that doesn't have third axis, or if I've never adjusted the third axis, right. when I come down, my bubbles run into one side. What's my natural tendency to do? Tilt. I want to level out. So I tilt that bow over. For a right-handed shooter, most of the time you tilt that bow to your left. What direction do you think you just pushed your arrow? 
because now you've added torque into the system as well as leveling out your bow. You just pushed your arrow way out. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, in my case, my, my mental scenario, hopefully that animal is facing my right. So I have more lungs and diaphragm and liver to the back to where I can potentially recover that animal still. Yeah. If he's facing the other direction, now I'm going into shoulder. Am I going to get penetration? How have I built my setup for that worst case scenario where I'm going straight through the middle of that scapula? Mm-hmm. 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 How would you, so let's say somebody is in a tree center, they know they're going to be coming up over the top of a hill and they have this second and third axis adjustment. So they've, is the second axis adjustment something you've probably already done at flat ground when you're sighting in the bow? Yep. Yep. And most guys, cause most guys will come to full draw and just, and notice it's hard for them to keep the bubble in mm-hmm. because they're, they're fighting it. So then, yeah, that's where they're going to adjust their second axis. Okay. Most techs at shops are going to do that right out of the gate for you. You can okay. put it in a press and typically your torque and everything that's induced into the system at full draw isn't going to change from static to full draw. Mm-hmm. So you can level that out in a vice right there before you even hand it over to the customer. You're leveled out, shoot. The only thing that would change that is if a guy tends to get in, a lot of trad guys that have converted for shoulders or elbow issues over oh, time, they like, to- they like to get into it. Depending on how much they're inducing in the system, sometimes you can level it out, sometimes you can't. Yeah. Sometimes it's, we got to rebuild you from the ground up because I need you here before I can... That's start, fair. start getting I into shoot, some of the more I, technical I definitely stuff. shoot my treadmill a little better when I when I get into yep. it a little bit and, more. And it's again, it's physics. Mm-hmm. I have a heavy enough arrow, and I have a shelf. If I lean down into that shot a little bit more, I'm going to keep it in the V of that shelf. Mm-hmm. If I'm up in vertical, as I come to full draw, I'm going to build tension on that string around my fingers. That actually rotates the string as you start coming to full draw. Yeah, because as you get more tension, you tend to dig in and grip harder on that right. string, which pulls the arrow off. Yeah. Because most guys are going to get in. If this is my knock, I'm going to bear down on that sucker. Mm-hmm. The more I do that, the more I'm going to throw that arrow off. Right. So if I lean it down, even if I build some of that pressure, chances are gravity is going to help keep that arrow in the right. via that window. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you get to the, uh, going back to that third axis thing now, now that's something that you're probably going to be adjusting when you're out in the field like situation dependent, right? No. So or once it, once or, your once your third axis is set, you're good to go. And oh. second axis does not affect what you've done to third axis. So you can set them each independently mm-hmm. and not have an effect on the other. Even if you're at less of a severe angle or more of a severe angle. Yep, cuz cuz at that point all I'm doing is making a vertical shift. Yeah. So okay. coming and again, don't want to there's the animal and I'm right here. You want to, okay, he's right here, come to full draw, get set, bend at the waist. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I was initially taught when I was in Mississippi was we're going to put guys in a bow that's anywhere from a half inch to a full inch shorter than their draw length should be. The reason for that is so many of that consumer base had that animal and they were going to be in that tree stand and draw straight there. They're already looking down at it. They're already sort of almost aimed at it, and then they just draw while they're already looking down. And so what happens to my good triangle structure is I'm not in line, bow arm straight into my shoulder and straight through into my back arm. Yeah. I'm here. My front shoulder's already collapsed. I have already shortened my draw potentially a full inch. Wow. Because my elbow's off to the side. I'm not in proper alignment. So So you're almost like setting stuff up to compensate for 
bad wor- practices. Worst case scenario. Yep. And that's not ideally what you're doing. It's <laughs> not, truly. Yeah. The, the bigger part is let's educate how we want this to go down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can have an animal there and I can come to full draw and anchor and I can come down on him and I have plenty of time if I set everything up correctly. Mm-hmm. So it's all about when do you draw? How's that animal's posture? What's he doing? How close is he? Are there other animals in the area? What's their attitude like? Yeah. So situational awareness and reading reading what's going on. So, so many so many variables. Well, what about what about? Because I want to get into like those other I guess you know variables that you can't control, right? Mm-hmm. But getting back to the equipment, like I've got an arrow here. Now I'm sure there's all sorts of different opinions, right? I mean, there's... I'd hold you know, your arrow, but I know you don't like me to touch your stuff. No touchy, Jim. But the pink so, is so pretty. Yeah. Dude, I, it's it's high-vis. Pink is a good luck color. I agree. Some Any any pink know. anywhere on the bow. My my best elk setups, pink four-inch wrap, pink veins, pink strings. I figure it's uh, basically the same color. They said red was dead, but it's pink. It's pink, it's baby. Pink. And, so, and that goes back to in my opinion, b- before light and knocks were legal when I was in Colorado, I needed something I could find my arrows to recover them so I exactly. knew what kind of shot I had. Because yeah. a lot of times things happen so quick, we can think it was a good shot, we go up there, all of a sudden it's, um, that's not lung blood, that's bile. That's how d- you take a step and you start rethinking mm-hmm. what happened. Mind plays tricks on you. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Re- you know, recovery of arrows is, is critical. There's nowhere that I hunt any season starting from August until spring turkey, that there is naturally pink in the woods. Right. Yeah, that's fair. So easy to find. Green, you can run into issues. White, you can run into issues. Yellow, I've run into issues. Orange, you can run into issues. Pink is the only one I can go to, and I know yeah. no matter where, no matter when, I can recover I'm arrows. convinced neon green is the hardest color to find in the wild. Mm-hmm. I'm genuinely convinced. It, it, I remember one time at camp, this is a random story that probably nobody cares about, but one time at camp we were playing nighttime capture the flag, and this one everybody was dressed in black because we all want to be sneaky. One dude dressed in bright neon freaking green. He was invisible. I could see everybody else. Everybody else was high contrast black shadows moving through the woods. Kid in bright green, invisible. Anyway, fun well, fact. Listen, listen up, operators. I, 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 say, yeah. I, think, I think a lot of military guys will agree with you on that. Versus black, go to grays. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. slightly brighter colors because their their ability to change contrast depend on the settings. Look at look at multicam. Yeah. Yep. Look at the ability of that in rocky terrain versus urban areas versus high country green grasses, things like that. Like look at the ability they've they've created for that to essentially absorb the outer environment and change contrast and even almost even changing the color palette from green to gray. Or yeah. to brown, or yeah. to well, and you think about it, you know, when you think about animals, right? I guess outside of a, a black black bear, which stands out like a sore thumb, generally, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're in a burn or something, you got a lot of stump bears out there, uh, which I can generally <laughs> find all of those. Uh, but uh, <laughs> muted earth tones, yeah. you know, that's that's what that's yep. what blends in, mm-hmm. you know. And, and and again, it's something again I don't see so much of in the whitetail market, but in the western market, tons and tons of grays. Browns, greens, solids being produced by companies yeah. in the in the clothing space. I love running a solid pair of pants with a camo top just to disrupt the pattern. That's what I do all the time. I mean, so, it essentially cuts your body in half. Yep. And sorry, I can go and I can wear those to the office. Yep. Yep. Like, yep. So nothing yeah. wrong with that. Dual purpose. Yep. I'm all about I'm all about all about the solid pants. 
Marco. You are, yes, <laughs> you are in your denim jeans there. You were just discussing arrows. So, so that's what so I want to get into you because your arrows. you know a long range setup I for, it, for target shooting, right? I think it could potentially be you know maybe not the exact arrow setup that you might want for hunting, you know, and, and I guess we've, we've thrown out a bunch of terms, you know, uh, FOC, you know, how much does your arrow weigh, you know, and that's going to be in- including which, uh, veins you select, you know, probably what knock you select, you know, are you going to shoot three, uh, vein, four vein, you know, a hundred mm-hmm. grain, uh, broadhead. So maybe go into, and I, and I guess let's speak to like a hunting setup, maybe the, uh, you know, maybe like a, a best practices or at least some, some solid, a solid foundation of what a person should be looking for as far as um, the type of the arrow and how it's set up. Yep. Um, so one thing, especially when you start considering penetration as well as long distance shooting, because to me, those two go hand in hand. Right. Okay. What kind of penetration am I going to get if I'm going to take a long distance shot? Mm-hmm. I'm looking for a thinner arrow. I want to I take my kinetic energy and I want to pick a bigger punch. Imagine if someone hits you with the flat of their hand, okay? Creates a red mark. It slaps. It hurts. Mm-hmm. Now, take a pencil with the same amount of force coming down on your hand because you just stole your coworker's sandwich. Okay. Sounds like oddly specific. I, <laughs> <laughs> I may or may not have seen something similar. But again, yeah. it's the transfer of energy. Okay. Larger surface area disperses more. Mm-hmm. So I want to take things and consolidate them. With the industry and the way it's gone, you have a lot more companies building what they call micro-diameter shafts. Mm-hmm. Those are the 204s, which is the, the Axis 5mm. Mm. Um, it's the, I believe, Kinetic Chaos from Gold Tip. And I know I, you know Black Eagle's got them and, and Victory's got them. Every manufacturer out there has a 204 system. Mm-hmm. You also have the 4mm, which is a 166. That's typically been the, the first company that did that was Easton with the Deep Six. Mm-hmm. Special insert, special thread, special broadhead. So a lot of companies came out with modified inserts for a 166. There was, a, there was an outsert technology, so a little bit more material, a little bit heavier. It increased your FOC, but it allowed you to use a standard 832 broadhead. So all of a sudden your options, again, opened up and became endless. Okay, gotcha. I'm a big fan of of the 166 or the four millimeter, you can run the titanium outserts, uh, about 55 grains from Easton. Every manufacturer has one. And again, they can run anywhere from like a 168 down to a 164, 163 internal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't necessarily use Easton and use a heavier from, you know, Victory with a 93 grain stainless steel may not fit. So so component-wise, be careful with that. But you have less physical surface area to catch wind and drift at distance. I have a smaller area. I'm going to concentrate that kinetic energy and that initial contact with the animal. Therefore, I'm going to gain penetration. Yeah, like with your hand example, one of them is like, hey, why'd you do that? The other one is, I need to go to the ER. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I guess with that kinetic energy... I also hear the word momentum thrown mm-hmm. around. I guess, what's the difference there? Um, so momentum is going to be a direct correlation between the speed of your arrow and the weight of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Kinetic energy is a much more complicated formula. It's speed, which is velocity squared, times the mass weight of your arrow all over a constant. With the standard system that we use, which is velocity in feet per second, grains as our weight, okay, mm-hmm. It is going to be mass weight in grains 
speed of our arrow in feet per second squared all over our constant 450,240. That will then create your kinetic energy calculator. Momentum, which is typically what you hear trad archers using, is just straight up mass and velocity. Boom, there we go. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. Gotcha. And, you know, and and talking about the... uh, diameter of the shaft, right? And then uh, FOC, which stands for front of center. Mm-hmm. What, I guess, define front of center for us? Um, so front of center is a, it's a percentage or it's a, it's a, how much weight is forward of the middle of your shaft. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't use that one as much, to be honest, but there's a measurement from center. You measure to the back, you measure to the front, and then you find that balance point, and then you can calculate the difference from center of arrow to balance point. Okay, right. To see where that that shift is at. Mm -hmm. Now, if I had to take a wild stab, and I genuinely don't know a whole lot about FOC and all that stuff, but it would seem that maybe either now or at one point people probably thought that having more mass up front meant that it would sort of determine the way and the back end would just follow. Control, yep. And control it better. pulling that arrow through the environment versus even or heavier back load, which is now pushing yeah which typically you can see less control yeah with mm-hmm. well it's like mm-hmm. rear wheel drivers front wheel drive it, yeah <laughs> sorry mark so I had to. so what and i i feel like i hear you know everybody's got their theory right and some people are like extreme you know extreme front of center a lot of weight up front which i think in some ways maybe intuitively maybe not intuitively depending on who you are like that seems like you'd be like, oh my gosh, I've got all this weight up front. I'm going to get like extreme penetration, right? Right. But I, from what I understand, that's not necessarily the case. Correct. And I don't think so either. I believe there is a point where, and again, you add weight to the front of your arrow and you actually weaken the system, the, the arrow itself. Hmm. Add weight to the back and you can increase stiffness. So as you cut your arrow, you get stiffer. As you build up the front weight, you get weaker. Right. So there's a, there's a fine balance point where... I created the perfect setup with my arrow length, but I put way too much weight up front, and now it doesn't tune. Okay. So, hmm. you know, there's, there's that balance. And, and again, Western hunters, I think, play with this a little bit more because of the increased potential distance that we're going to be hunting because we want to pull that arrow through the air. Yeah. Where you're seeing guys running 75-grain brass insert with 125 or 150-grain broadhead, and all of a sudden, it's I'm shooting 200 to 225 grains up front, and my total arrow weight is 670 grains. Might be overkill. Like you can take that yeah, setup that to like a big Africa, percentage. right? So, um, right. you know, I I look at our Olympic athletes um, and the guys that are competing with compounds at Reading Tournament, which is marked yardage 3D tournament in Reading, California, every year. Your shots are anywhere from four yards to 101. What kind of setup are they running? Well, they're going to run an Easton Pro Tour arrow with anywhere from 100 to 120 grains up front because Easton runs a break-off 100 to 120 point. Okay, so that's that's kind of the realm I want to work within when I start building my long-distance setup. Mm-hmm. So I take an Easton injection, 330, which is 10.1 grains per inch. I use the Deep Stakes insert, which is 20-grain stainless steel. I have a 100-grain broadhead that I start with, so I have 120 total grains up front. If I feel like I need more, I can bump that field point of broadhead up to 125, and now I'm shooting 145 up front. That's really about all I 
want to work with and and really feel the need that I need to play with because mm-hmm. um, that's really going to get me anywhere from you know eleven to thirteen percent up to potentially seventeen ish, mm-hmm. um, which it's just it's a happy place for where my setups have typically built mm-hmm. with with the length of my arrow. Gotcha. Um, you know, we had we had talked about how we met with with the photo shoots. Um, Justin Davis was one mm-hmm. of the guys that was on those photo shoots with yep. us. Um, another Colorado guy. God, that one guy's of the a most killer. hard. Oh, dude, drew his mountain goat tag, drew his moose tag this year. We have almost identical setups. We're both running a thirty-four axle axle um, RX three Ultra series. Um, we're both pulling seventy-two to seventy-seven pounds. He is a huge FOC guy. Uh, so we were talking last week. He had 140 grains up front. Whew. Impacts were great. You, he can call shots. He knows where arrows are going to land. His groups are tight. I'm thinking about playing with another 20 grains. What do you think? Do it and see what happens. If your groups open up, I think you weakened your spine too much. Right. If they shrunk down, I'd say you found a good system. I don't want to go there. One of the reasons is I'm limited enough by the deep six for my broadhead selection. Okay. I don't want to go to 125 in a deep six and limit me even more versus having to find another system to run right. to put more weight up there. Mm. You can double stack inserts. Now I can put 40 grains there and have a 125 option. I can go from 140 to 165. What happens if I don't want to double insert it? Uh, now I got to figure out how to get one out of there. So there's drawbacks in right. my opinion for that. Is there, so, how does um, FOC affect penetration? And again, depends on the distance, but as you get longer, FOC is going to help increase momentum and kinetic at distance because it's going to maintain energy because you're pulling, not pushing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you could potentially at 80 yards get better penetration having 160 grains up front versus having 120. I would have more initial speed, but it would fall off quicker because of drag. Okay. okay. So, how do you get more weight on the back? Um, wraps, more oh. more veins, a heavier vein, lighted knocks, and states that allow you to use them. Different lighted knocks weigh different amounts. Yeah. Some would weigh twenty. Some weigh as much as thirty plus grains. Hmm. Um, you can run a four inch wrap, which typically run about five grains. You can run a seven inch wrap, which typically go up to you know, 10 to 12. If you change the material of the wrap, you can get heavier. If you run a standard wrap and have a little more overlay, you could put more weight on the back versus running like a, a micro diameter one, which is going to cut down the amount of material. So you run less weight. Hmm. The, the AAE max stealth mm-hmm. weigh about nine grains per vein. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a 2.6 inch. So you're running approximately 27 grains plus glue on the back. Mm-hmm. I like the PM 23, from AAE, which is 2.3 inches, same parabolic or rounded cut to the back, but it's a shorter profile. I can run four of those, and their new hybrid one is just a touch over four grains. Mm -hmm. So I've got 18-ish grains on the back plus glue and a wrap. So I'm still less with four veins set up than you are with a three. Gotcha. And is it, is like, so speaking of veins, is like, more veins better if you can do it, or for control and stability. Yes, I do believe that, especially if you're shooting a fixed blade. Okay, it will create more drag, so you will lose energy quicker over distance. Hmm. Okay, okay. But when it comes to control, again, 
I run a I ran a four vein setup of of the Stealth last year. Loved the control. I shot a bigger fixed blade broadhead and had 80 yards was shooting with my field points. Hmm. What more do you need? Right. Mark, you you were running four, right? So yeah, so initially I had this uh this exact setup and then uh gosh, I'm trying to remember the name. It was the it was the AAE so these are this is the Max Stealth, and it was the Max. Maybe it's the ones you're even talking about. Hunter, they have yeah. kind of a step down yeah. on the back. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was running the the four fletch there, just because you know I've heard a lot of talk about it, did some research, and again, and, and this might tie into some of the other stuff that we're talking about about adjusting your rest mm-hmm. and whatever. I I was paper tuning just fine with them, mm-hmm. and again, we talked a little bit about grip, so maybe it could have been just my input into the system, but. I was noticing erratic arrow flight mm-hmm. with field points, and then when uh, I'd put a fixed blade broadhead in, it was just like really not, bad, like it ex- accentuated like, it, right? It, yeah, it accentuated it. Where when I switched to uh, these veins, it just really seemed to clean it all up. Mm-hmm. And and that specific vein, um, it's two point one inches long, and it's their higher profile, um, so it's like point six or point six five inches tall. Okay, it's one of the highest. In the market, so that's the the Boning Blazer, uh, the Max Hunter, Vaintex got a two inch model because those veins are so short to create the same drag coefficient or control and steering that that vein is going to produce. You have to build it taller. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if your rest was in the optimum position where you were just slightly inside with a higher profile vein at the right distance away from paper, could have been perfect. Okay. You could have stepped a foot back or a foot forward and gotten a slight tear. Okay. Which now once you put a fixed blade broadhead on, makes it even worse. Right. You know, if if you're seeing that arrow come out and kick to left, you probably would have had a left tear if you stepped up or back. Okay. Just because of where the arrow was coming out of out of your bow. Hmm. Which is now going to if I'm throwing a left tear, it's going to pull because now my broadhead has more surface area. It's gonna pull and drive it to the right, opposite of what my tear would be. Yeah. Interesting. Is that because the veins, like, is that because they're contacting something as they're leaving the bow that they're doing that? Or is that just because of the way they fly through the air with that particular arrow set up and weight up front and FOC and all that other stuff? Um, I'm always concerned with with fletching contact on a higher profile vein, Um, whether that's contact on the cables, contact on the rest itself. Mm-hmm. Um, if a drop away rest isn't timed properly, it could be dropping just slow enough with a high profile vein that you're going to make contact coming out of the bow. Okay. And that's going to shift my veins, put pressure on that arrow. And now it's coming out doing something squirrely. Hmm. Um, so get some foot powder spray mm-hmm. and make sure it leaves a white residue, spray the back end of your arrow, come to full draw and see if there's any marks on cables as you go by or on your rest fork as it drops. Oh, it'll it'll leave that, that residue on it. Yep, I got contact. I need to do something. Either change my veins, um, look at my rest timing, potentially change my rest if I can't get to move the way I need it to. Okay. Mark, have you figured this thing out? Uh, or is that why we brought Evan here today? So, well, <laughs> I couldn't tell you what was happening, mm-hmm. but I can tell you that it's cleaned up now yeah. by making that Because I watched you shoot it, and I thought it shot pretty well. And as it, it just sounds to me like it, the thing that's baffling is... Do you There's have a just spe- so much that goes into it. There's so much that goes in. Do you have a speculation of what? If if you changed veins and it cleaned it up, I'm guessing you had slight contact 
So if you look at the rest right there, yeah. you see that skid mark across the base? Yeah. yeah. You had white veins on it, didn't you? Mm-hmm. That's a white vein mark. So you were making contact with your rest with a higher profile vein setup. Look at that mark. I never would have noticed that the in a million years. This guy could be like a forensic scientist or something. He's like Ducky. If we get some time, if we get some time today, I want to go shoot and have you watch okay. the setup. We should so, have got the setup down. Yeah. And another good test, especially where you guys shoot a lot together, if you were behind him with a set of binos at like ten yards behind him. Yeah. Where Mark can come to full draw and off the, the left side of your image you have him at full draw with his bow. Okay. And you can see the target and you put them where you can see a clear path of arrow trajectory. Mm-hmm. You as a spotter can get behind him just like a tactical like, guy is going to yeah. have okay, Spot shooter, spotter. Yep. Okay. I'm, I'm marking your arrow for you. I'm looking at how that arrow is coming out. And again, you want to do it at distance for two reasons. One, you want to have flight time. That mm-hmm. way your, your spotter can track that arrow. And two, you want it to be a long enough distance that that arrow is going to get up into the sky where it's not impeded by any kind of shrubbery or landscape terrain. So you can physically see what that arrow is doing. Mm-hmm. And, okay, yeah, it's coming out. we got a slight corkscrew going on. You put a broadhead on, and you're going to see a, an impact shift. Okay. So, Real quick, what is the thing that happens when you put you go from a field point and you see something? Why does it seem like a broadhead almost accentuates whatever you see with a field point? So with a, an expandable type, most guys are going to want to shoot a two-inch broadhead because it leaves a big hole. Okay. okay? So that ferrule or the broadhead itself, that length increases. So most field points are going to be, let's say, half an inch to five-eighths of an inch. Okay. Two-inch broadhead, you're talking inch and a half in length. Okay, I'm taking weight, the same weight, but I'm extending that distance and pushing it farther from the oh, end okay. of the shaft. Yeah. I'm changing my front of center. Mm-hmm. I'm changing my, my balance point of that arrow. Yeah. Okay. Typically what you'll see is even with an expandable – at distance, it will start hitting low. Okay. Okay. With a fixed blade, still typically has a shorter ferrule, but you're still talking an inch, inch and a quarter, mm-hmm. depending on the, the cutting diameter and the blade angle. But now I have fixed blades. It might be something like a, like a Hades from Grim Reaper or a Striker or a Slick Trick where uh, the blades have a cutout design to minimize weight to get down to that 100 or that 125 grain. Mm-hmm. But now you create one blade surface area, and two, you change air disruption because you have opened up that blade surface. So if I have my ferrule here and I've got a broadhead blade, mm-hmm. I'm not going straight over a system. Yeah, I have air pockets and holes yeah. that that air can drop into, and now I create more resistance when I go through the air. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So It's kind of like uh, almost like a muzzle brake. Well, kind of, but mm-hmm. way different. But the way that gas diverts around, or air, oh okay, yep. diverts around open openings in the broadhead. So, so, what kind of what you hear people talk about planing is that kind of what's happening there too? Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. I feel Just like the way that air is, yep, it'll passing do, over the blades. Yep, and it, and again, you might have a great paper tear to your eye, but as you start stepping back, let's say past forty, mm-hmm. it you might start noticing that shift where you were good up to that. Because it was so minuscule that, you know, 50, you see it move a little, 60, you see it move a little bit more, 70, and all of a sudden you just see it start opening up hmm. group-wise. Right. Sometimes it's the broadhead. Sometimes it's just 
I'm I'm naturally moving a lot more at that right. distance. So you you have to take some of that into account. Yeah, that's tough. So that is that's always tough to try and figure out what's just you and what's the bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and one thing I feel like so we discussed it sort of back at the beginning, but I feel like it's probably something worth iterating on quite a bit is is a lot of this comes down to everybody loves to talk about the gear and everybody loves to I remember back when I was a kid I used to get the latest basketball shoes like the Shacks or the you know what was it the uh, Tracy McGrady's mm. and, oh you went pro after that right uh, yeah <laughs> basically right you know but it was I literally remember walking to my house my brothers being like how high can you jump with those shoes with they, they, like egging me on you yeah. know like how fast can you run with those and it'd be like oh they're way faster than last year's I can jump <laughs> so much higher than last year's and so everybody wants to talk about the gear because they think it's like oh oh mm-hmm. it, it makes me so much better but but the actual shooter comes into this a ton yep. like what are some really good what's the best way to go out and practice like when you're at when you're at the range, because when I go out, I'm kind of like, eh, throw the target up. Eh, that's you know. Well, of course, I'm a trad boat too. So for me, I'm not like you know. Mark likes it to be exactly 20 yards, not like mm-hmm. 20.1. For me, I'm just kind of like, yeah, it looks like about 20 yards, you know. But what? How do you do it? You know. It, and it depends on where you started at. Um, again, you know, going back to that new consumer, tons of blank bail. Yeah. Like get 10 yards from a big four foot target or something you know you're not going to miss, with no spots no target, nothing up there, and just come to full draw, feel your anchor, feel how you're in the grip, and execute a shot. Don't get your finger up there and just hammer down on that trigger. Make contact. Get a release that has an actual spring on it that you can get your finger engaged, just like a rifle trigger, yeah, like a and squeeze through that shot. Okay. Um, index triggers, I really like the Carters. They have a light, a medium, and a heavy spring. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on which model you get from them, comes with all the springs, play with them. See which one you like. Mm-hmm. I cannot get their heavy to go off unless I just crank into it. I put a light in there, and I can barely touch it. Medium right. is perfect. And it's like an 80-pound spring. I can build tension, get enough finger into there that even in cold, when I don't have a glove on, because I, I never use a glove, okay. um, I'd rather use a muff and have a... Oh, like hot, hot hands, hands. Yeah. In there yeah, okay. to keep everything warm. That way, yep. when I get out, I have nothing to impede my anchor point and my connection to the trigger. Right. Because yep. I want to feel the connection to my bow and the connection to the to the release. Yeah. So And just execute good shots, build that muscle memory in that form, then start putting the target into play. Because mm-hmm. it'll change. Are you a guy that wants to look at the target and just kind of lets things float and you stare and you execute good shots and you just kind of blur out the pins, but they go in the right areas or are you a guy that has to stare at your front sight and physically put that pin into an area and hold it there to, to execute your shot because it's two completely different yeah mental tasks when it comes to that execution is a person going to be naturally drawn to one of those two things or is that something that you're depending on either just what you start doing or what somebody teaches you that's kind of good going to be the way you go i think it's more taught because okay. because first thing that you want to do, oh, I want to I I gotta put I have to put my pin here. Right. So you naturally look at that pin on your front sight and get it into the area. Well, that blurs the target out, so it actually increases your subconscious view of it. Okay. Which I've heard. So and I think that's what I that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Right. You stare at the pin. I stare at the pin, and, and the target blurs. And in some ways, it's not too different. You hear talk, or at least I would assume it's not that different. You know, guys talk about pistol shooting, right? And it's like front sight, front sight, and actually, I think the target ends up, mm-hmm. you know, kind yeah. of kind of blurring. 
But I was on, on the YouTube the other day, and I was hearing a guy describe kind of like, well, actually, you probably want to be doing the reverse because it'd be like when you're driving a car and you're just staring at your steering wheel. And I was like, oh, that kind of does make sense. Like, you don't stare at the steering wheel. You stare at, you yeah. know. Where you want to drive, where, where you want to go. go. Yeah. Like yeah. Looking downrange at the target or the road. So, it's, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, and, Evan? And, yep. Always look at your target. So, yeah, so and and my great. and my system that I felt like I built is I start close and move far. So I come to full draw, hit my anchor, get my nose down. I look at my peep sight and build that center focus. So peep good spot right to my front sight ring. Once I have my peep sight and my front housing lined up, check the bubble and now I'm downrange and I yeah. n- never go back to anything here. And there's a little okay. bit of too like giving your brain the information to you know, your subconscious is always working, but sometimes it's nice to sort of train your subconscious to know what your conscious wants to it to look at. Yep. So when you look down that peep site and you see that post, and then you go on to look at other things, at least your brain remembers what that looked like. It's a little bit like when, uh, you know, um, you're looking for a deer out in the wild, you know, you're glassing. You don't always start seeing deer necessarily until you finally see that first one because then mm-hmm. you get your deer eyes and your brain then knows, oh, okay, yeah, that's right. That's what I'm looking for. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's like, oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one. And, and we used to run exercises when I was at the OTC where you're in position, you've got everything loaded, and the guy you're training with that day is like, okay, we're going to do subconscious training. I want you to shoot a shot and this ring in this clock location. Well, you're running peep sites, so it's all circles. There's there's no crosshairs. There's no dot. There's nothing to look at. It's circle, circle, circle target. It's all open. Hmm. How do you figure that out? You look there. Okay, this looks like it's 9.3 at 1 o'clock, so I'm going to look right there, execute my shot. Electronic monitor comes up, 9.4. Okay, I'm within a tenth. Started doing that when I started shooting more long-distance archery. It's... Okay, I want to call my shot mm-hmm. versus I want to shoot in the center. Okay, come to full draw. I want to shoot a seven at three. Okay, I'm staring over seven ring, three o'clock, take the shot. Spotter, seven, three o'clock. Okay, perfect. My sight's on. Mm-hmm. I, I put it where I was looking. Things are good. Now I just have to go back to the center and stare at it and focus at it. And call your shots, especially longer distance stuff. The arrow has enough flight time. Break that shot. Mentally put it in your mind. This is where my eyes were at when that shot broke. Mm-hmm. Binos. Yep. That's where it hit. Yeah. Mentally catalog mm-hmm. and keep track of that stuff. Yep. That's dope. Yep. And it's good mental training as well. And yeah. if you can, 2014, I drew my first limited entry Colorado elk tag. Stoked about it. Got up in there. And I got between two bulls. One of them was by himself. One of them had a herd of cows. And I knew the, the lower one was a, a six that had one whole side broken off because I'd passed him that morning and had this solo bull come in. And he was a big five by six and came right in on me, 17 yards, came to full draw. And I snapped a twig. He didn't turn away. He turned into me, made a good shot, but only got one lung, blew him out eight hours later, never found him. Heartbroken. Searched for a week, never found him. Mm. Moved spots two days later. I actually had Justin on the phone, and I had just got to where I wanted to camp, took my pack off, started to pull my stuff out, and was on 
an east-facing slope and had service because town was, you know, three miles away and big open flat. So I'm talking to him, pulling stuff out, and I hear a bull just, oh. hey, Justin, I got to go. I had a, I got a bull going, and, and I'm inside 100 yards already. What? Hung up the phone, grabbed a camo shirt, went right in, smelled him, wind was coming up, saw one of his cows moving, had another one come to the other side, hit a cow call. He bugles, and he comes up, came to full draw. I was like, okay, he's going to be right here. Put my pins in those spots and waited. He stepped in, and I didn't even have to cow call. And it was a point-restricted unit. So it had to be four points to a side mm-hmm. or a five-inch brow tine. Well, because I came to full draw as early as I did, I didn't know what he was. I had anchored in, and I ended up going over my string and looking to the side of my bow. And went, He's a legal bull. And instead of coming back into my peep side, I just went straight down to the shoulder pocket with my eyes still here going, I think I want, and the shot broke. And the arrow went where my eyes were looking. Well, not, not in my anchor, not in my peep sight, nothing. I got there first, trained my body, the shot will be right here. And that's where the shot broke, and that's where he was at. Just, it's amazing what you can do mentally when you've connected so well with your equipment. And that's where practice comes in. Yeah. Mark, that's that's pretty impressive. That's getting a trad. Yeah. That's getting some trad bow. I know you're kind of right you're there. blending it a little bit, blending it's it. Blending. Well, let's you try, know try the Cam Haynes no look shot with with a trad bow. Oh, I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> that might be what I actually do uh, inadvertently every time. And we've covered some of the stuff, but like you know, it's like we've got the equipment, and I guess what are what are the things a person needs to keep in mind when they're shooting, really. I guess every bow shot, really, mm-hmm. not just long range. But like, what are the things that you want to do to make sure? Because there's a lot of benefits to shooting long range. Maybe we probably should have gotten into some of these earlier. But you were talking about, you know, essentially that uh, practicing at double the distance. Maybe you anticipate shooting mm-hmm. at a game animal. So maybe go into that a little bit, oh, yeah, and yeah. then we can transition into kind of like how a person wants to go through and make sure that they're executing these shots correctly and consistently. Um, and one of the big things, too, is treat every shot as its own. You know, a lot of guys will go out, I'm going to shoot a three- or five-arrow group, and they just get down there and wing them. Every shot counts. Get that tracker, shoot one arrow, go pull it. Shoot one arrow, go pull it. Every single time. Don't don't shoot for a group once you feel like, okay, my sights are on, I know everything's rolling with my setup, everything is good, I just need time behind the bow. I'll take a 30-minute lunch break at work, and I'll go over and I'll shoot. And I might only shoot 12 or 15 arrows in 30 minutes because I'm shooting one shot, putting my bow down, and I'm walking 80 to 100 yards down to that target, pulling and walking all the way back. Hmm. But one quality shot every single time. It's the only shot I'm going to get. Yeah. This is the one that counts. I know what you're going to say, Mark. Well, I know. I don't have I to know. say it. The one shot group. So, And that's, and that's where that... <laughs> that app or that, that shot tracker can come into play where, okay, I'm going to shoot arrow one, 15 yeah. shots this day, one arrow at a time. Shoot, pull, shoot, pull. The next day might be arrow number two. Mm-hmm. And plot them. Arrow number one, here's my 15 for that day. Arrow number two, here's my 15. You might have one or two or three that are doing good, but you notice, let's say number four is flying a little bit, five or six come back into the group. Strip it and refletch it. Turn the knock a little bit. Who knows? Yeah. You know, could be just something with that arrow. But by putting the time in with that specific arrow, tracking them, and making each shot its own individual, this is the one I'm going to get. You'll see that. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then the double distance practice, 
so that was something I ran into when I first started getting into bow hunting. Um, there was an article that Bill Krenz wrote that was published in Bowhunt America. And it was, you know, with, with my equipment and my capabilities and what I'm confident in, I know I can do X, you know, whether that's 20 yards, whether that's 30, maybe it's 40, maybe you're pushing further out. But if I can shoot a 10-inch group at 80 yards, but I know my, like, my safe zone, like my comfort zone is 40 yards on an animal. Too many things happen after that. Like I, I've seen bad things. I don't want to go past that. And, and you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Ethics is it's a personal thing. If 40 yards is your cap, 40 yards is your cap. Practice at 80. Yep. Mm-hmm. If you can take, and let's say you start out and you're shooting a 20-inch group at 80, and you shoot and you shoot and you shoot and you get more comfortable and more confident, and all of a sudden you're shooting an 8-inch group at 80 yards, well, when you come to 40, that should be a 4-inch group. Right. Mm-hmm. You're half the distance. You are twice as effective. And slowly push that comfort boundary. You know, maybe after a couple months, you try 90. And now you take that four-inch group at 40, and now it's a four-inch group at 45. Mm-hmm. You go to 100. Now when you come back to 50, you've pushed that four-inch group from 40 to 45, and now you're 50. What if you have to take a follow-up shot at 50 yards? You've already gotten yep. into an animal, and he stops. Yeah. I've done it. I shot a whitetail buck in Kansas in 2014 at less than eight yards. Spot and stock, had a decoy, got him out of his bed. He came right in. I was in grass this tall. Jeez. It was like a six-yard shot. Perfect double long, inch-and-a-half fixed blade broadhead. He goes, jumps out to about 18 yards. I get a second arrow knocked, come to full draw. He's not on the ground yet. I'm going to put a second arrow in him. Yep. As I hit full draw and come into my anchor, he starts walking away. And he's not straight away. He's angling up this hill going to the southwest okay he was at 18 there's 20 25 there's 30 and i literally i'm walking him up the hill pin on him mm-hmm. it's like and he stopped and he looked back and he gave me about this angle i was like 51 yards put my 50 on his back ham went up through behind the last rib got both lungs came out right in front of the the front shoulder between the neck and that front shoulder he goes 60 yards and is done. Yeah. Wow. So, but it's a 50 yard follow up. And that's, you know, that's a 50 yeah. yard follow up. And that, I mean, that's a really big thing to remember. No, no matter what, you know, you set your personal limits at, everything doesn't always go right mm-hmm. the first time. And if you get uh, a bad hit that's, you know, well within your comfort range, yep. who knows what went wrong, right? Yep. Like I said, the animal could have moved, you could have any, any number of factors, right? It's infinite. But you might need to take that 50, 60, 100-yard shot potentially. Yep. yep. And, and, and once you got an arrow in them, you know, you have a responsibility to do the best of your ability to recover the animal. Yeah. Yep. You know, a mule there I shot in Colorado a couple years ago, same thing. Got an arrow in him, and it was a good shot. And again, you replay that. It's like, uh, did, I, did I hit him here? Did I hit him here? Like, he's not down. He stopped on the slope, perfectly broadside. I hit him with a rangefinder, 77 yards. All right. I've been practicing it over 100 Came to full draw, came down on him. That motion, he looked up, turned his body, went up and end over, and and it was done. I didn't have to take it. Right, but you were comfortable I was ready and, confident. and prepared to do it. Yeah. So and and conversely, the same thing. You know, I've talked to a lot of guys and had this shot on this buck and and thought I hit him at 18, 20 yards, and so yep, I was ready for a follow up, and he stopped at 56, 60 yards on a whitetail. Yep. Mm. Half of those guys I talked to missed that first shot. 
Yeah. Their adrenaline was spiked. Things yeah. happened so quick. They thought they had an arrow in. The animal was still standing. I need to put him down. This is the opportunity I have. We owe it to the animal. Yep. Now, had they known they missed the first shot, would they have taken the second? Probably not. Right. But because they trusted that they had been practicing that and they knew their equipment, they were able to put an arrow in that animal. That one in particular I got in my head was a 165-inch buck in Iowa. They had never seen on the farm before. Guy missed him at, I think it was 19 yards, spun out in the middle of food plot, looked back at 58 yards. Second arrow, here we go. As calm as can be. Yeah. Nice. Yep. Nice. Well, and I think, you know, oftentimes we want to say that, oh, you know, if you're whitetail hunting, you're not going to encounter, um, you know, these, these longer distances. And I'd say, well, that depends on the terrain. But also, you know, here, I mean, we're in the, the heart of the Midwest, and I'm comfortable shooting out to 50 yards. And the last two deer that I've killed with my bow in this state have been basically right at 50 yards. Yep. Yeah. And they both... What you was know, Eric's at? Eric's was right around here in Wisconsin too. Uh, I don't recall what his was at. It might, it might have, it might have been something like that. But, but again, like practice at those ranges. I'm comfortable at those ranges, and mm-hmm. and um, wouldn't have gotten deer either of those years had I not been able to make make that shot. Yep. And yeah, I mean, like you said, there's there's guys that are eclipsing that greatly. You know, for a mm-hmm. lot of guys, 50 yards is yeah not a big deal at all. Yeah, right? Or but, or an average shot, depending on where you're at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but again, it's it's also reading that situation. Had that buck been on alert and looking at you because you went, I'm not going to take that shot because he's going to duck. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's up feeding. He's looking around. You know, again, again, situational awareness. Every every situation will be different. Yep. Well, and I right. think some guys, you know, you bring up, you know, the, the animal's uh, demeanor, mm-hmm. right? And I think people like to draw ethics lines in the sands in the sand of you know how far you know other people should shoot. And I think you potentially could argue an animal that's further away, that's less aware of your presence, is going to possibly be a better shot to take if you're confident mm-hmm. shooting at those distances. Absolutely, the animals I've shot past 50 yards, broadside, looking at me, draw, anchor, execute. And take the arrow. Never moved. Jeez. Well, what is that? There's a comfort zone. Yeah. And, and you read whatever article you want about it. You hear guys talk about it. Randy Ulmer, going back to him, every animal has a comfort zone. I know if I get to this distance, I'm probably inside it. So I am prepared to get only to here. And I'm not getting closer. There's something to it. Interesting. Now, I, I added up all the, all the animals I had taken and it was, was, it was about 10 animals in a seven-year period. And I added up all the shot distances. My average was just over 55 yards. Mm-hmm. Now, we're talking Western muleys. And, and Western, it's Kansas and Colorado. Yeah. But it was just over a 55-yard average. And I had one at 18, and I had one that was much further. So comfort zones are big. Animals' demeanor is big. Environmental factors, what kind of terrain, what's the wind doing? Wind, yep. Yep. And it's, I don't feel like I can go out and criticize someone for taking a shot because I don't know what they're doing. Right. What's their setup? How much have they shot it? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, especially with social media these days, I have a hard time going out there and publicizing, hey, I you know shot this buck at this distance and so pumped and blah, blah, blah. I don't know how guys are going to take it. Yeah. They don't, they don't know how much I'm shooting. They don't know what I put into my setups. You know, if I go out and say, 
know, I shot this bucket 61 yards. Well, boom, I'm going to get crucified. Right. Yeah. Well, my mule there this year, 63.3. And I was 25 feet above him shooting down into a canyon with the wind coming over the top, quartering into me in the snow. I was ready for it. Yeah. It's almost identical to the elk shot I had this year as far as angle and distance was 15 yards difference. And I didn't know how far my bull was. I built my setup where I knew, okay, I'm shooting, you know, 302 feet per second with a 455 grain arrow. It's going to get there. He's between this and this. That gap is going to be six inches drop between them. <laughs> Money. Done. Oh. Yep. Because we've all been in that situation, too, where we don't get to range the animal. Yeah. Or he's coming up. He's going to be over here. That's, that's where the trail's at. That's where the does have been coming. That's where the cows are at. Whatever the situation is, that animal is going to be over here. I'm going to range this tree, this tree. Okay, everything is between 22 and 37 yards. I know what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden, he comes in, makes a 90-degree cut. Um, okay, take your best guess because he's already looking at you. Yep. We've covered so much ground. And I, I, feel like, I feel like we've left a little bit on the table, but... I feel it's almost like a uh, cliffhanger. Yes. But I think the bottom line is get the right setup yes. and, and get to know your and setup. And get proficient put, with it. Put the time in. And, and if you're fletching your own stuff, play with different vein setups. Play with different broadheads. Again, you want to talk about long-range shooters and automotive guys and archers, there's no difference. We are all gearheads. It's true. That is absolutely true. You find that uh, very, very uh, big similarity between everybody. And that's um, been very, very interesting listening to this. Because me as a relative new entry into the uh, into the archery world now. And um, it's been very interesting to hear all those It's just similarities. It really makes me want to shoot more and more and more and actually fiddle with my stuff more and more and more. And we didn't even go into quivers and stabilizers yet. Jiminy Christmas. Oh, real quick, what, uh, real quick, uh-oh. Uh-oh. stabilizers. So I've got, you see guys, you know, I guess I'd call this a more traditional stabilizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you guys have these, you know, kicker bars. I mean, what are your thoughts on stabilizers? Stabilizer is the... We'll go uh, back to the gear. Yep, That's what's going to yep, fix it. Is the dongle sticking yep. out on the front. Yep. Yes. Um, so this is this is a Hoyt with our uh, Pro Series. This is the 8-inch version. We make those in an eight and a six. Most companies, um, especially stabilizer ones, are going to run, you know, six, eight, 10, 12, 15, 20, 24, 27, 30, 33, 36. So that's going to be hunting and target. At what point is the stabilizer just touching the target? Um, Steve Anderson at six foot eight running a 33 inch stabilizer. <laughs> that <laughs> Try, is trying to shoot a Redding. Uh, what was it this year? Was there was a 3.2 yard shot or something like that? <laughs> so in a hunting scenario, yep. essentially you've equipped yourself with a bayonet. Yep, just put a just put okay. a poke around the yep. end of it. Yep. But again, let's get back to talking about surface area. We talked about surface area of the arrow and flight path. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. The longer the stabilizer, the thicker diameter of it, the more surface area for wind to connect to. Right. You leave your quiver on. You have four, five, or six arrows with veins and a quiver mount hood. You have more surface area on your bow to contact. And therefore, as the wind picks up, 
So does your movement. Yeah, it's like a sail on yeah. the sailboat. So, and that's that is one thing I do like about the carbons is depending on what I'm going to be hunting elk. I know I'm covering more terrain, and I'm going to be in the woods. So wind doesn't become a factor in my shot. Right. It becomes a factor in what it is doing from a scent standpoint, mm-hmm. but not in my shot. Um, so I can go super ultra light with my setup for elk. And then as I go to the Midwest or I start getting in that spot in stock, I can tweak my stabilizer setup. I'm not going to change my speed, but I could potentially change the angle that the bow sits in my hand, slight bump in a sight tape. So if you're running a slider sight, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a sight tape on it. My point of impact as I change my stabilizer weights, because it's going to change the angle and how it sits in my hand, Mm -hmm. could cause a vertical shift in my point of impact. Roll your sight, move your indicator, double check everything, 20 to however far you're going to do it. Shouldn't move any marks. You might just need to make a vertical adjustment there. Hmm. You see a lot of Western guys go to a longer front stabilizer, anywhere from 10, 12, or even 15 inches up in front. The longer that stabilizer gets the less weight you need on the end to have the same effect. Okay, sure. So where Mark's running an 8-inch stabilizer with about 4, actually with the, with the doinker, you're about 6.8 to 7 ounces or so up front. Mm-hmm. What is it with you putting doinkers on all your weapons? You got a doinker <laughs> on your 300 Wisdom, you got a doinker on your bow. So I could, I could run a 15-inch stabilizer and put 2 or 3 ounces up front and have the same balance point but I have less total weight on it. So then it's, okay, how does it how does it handle long distance? How much does it move around? Do I go to a narrower stabilizer to cut down on the surface area so I move less, but I hold better because I have less weight farther out? Okay. So huh. back bars are the same thing. Where do you want the balance point? When I take my shot, what I'm essentially feeling is I want that bow to go straight at the target and then die off. Okay. So if you're to watch me from the side, and this is this is my riser, the bow is going to go towards the target because I have a little bit of push I'm going to have left in my body. Right. Because I'm building tension, I'm pushing towards the target, and I'm pulling away. When that shot breaks, it's boom, bow goes forward, and then my follow-through, straight arm, and it dies to the side. So the bow never rocks, doesn't kick vertical the whole time through that plane. For me, if it kicks up, I'm going to add weight to the front, bring it down. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If it rolls hard, I'm going to start either taking weight off or maybe change the back angle. Okay. Do you shoot with your quiver on or off? I use a two piece. So I use a fixed quiver so it's always on. Okay. Now, to fight the surface area, I only run a four arrow. Okay. Typically out west, I'm only going to have one or two tags in my pocket. If I'm going in deeper for a longer trip, like this year, uh, me and my buddy went into Colorado. It was a nine day elk hunt. Four arrow quiver, uh, my broadhead of choice, I can actually take the blades off. And so I've got little containers that our cam bearings come in, mm-hmm. and I can get four broadheads in there and then just tape it up. So I've got four extra broadheads on top of the four I'm hiking in. Okay. And then in my bugle tube, I put it upside down on the side of my pack, and I can stick spare arrows, veins down in my bugle tube hmm. to hike in. So I've got four at all times ready to go plus backups in case. Okay. So right on. But and that reduces weight on my bow, that reduces surface area for um veins. It, so I'm not gonna catch on extra stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've the only time I've had issues was two thousand ten in Colorado. 
I hit a buck that we never recovered, and I completely lost the arrow, so I was down to four. Two or three days later, the buck I was after was below me, came to full draw, came down, and I was straddling a log and thought I was high enough. I caught it by about a sixteenth of an inch with my bottom cam, kicked my bow, arrow broke in half, went flying. I got a second opportunity at him, came over and just rushed the shot and was able to recover that. So now I'm down to three with a spare broadhead in camp. I had three good arrows. The ninth day of that trip, no, sorry, 10 days there, came back in and didn't even get a chance to build new arrows. So I went in with three arrows. The buck I was after came below me, didn't get a chance to range him, thought he was closer than he was, took the first shot, and it went like 10 inches under his belly. Bounced off the rocks below him, so he turned to look down to see what was going on, grabbed another one, came to full draw, and didn't even still get to range him, just came up and broke the shot and got yeah. him on that one. So I went through all five arrows in my quiver. Yeah, yeah. Good thing you brought, yeah. Good thing you brought oh, enough. I always bring enough ammo. Mm-hmm. Right, the more rounds you got, the more. Well, this wasn't so, about the less aim it takes, but the more <laughs> rounds you got. Yeah, arrows yeah. The in more the rounds quiver, you got, don't keep deliver. aiming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I was, I, we're trying to wrap that it there, like, then I come no, up with no, like 100 no, more questions. That was, a worthwhile, that was a worthwhile addition, I would say, to the end of this bad boy. But surely there's more that we can talk about about bows. I, I, I have a feeling it is a very interesting topic today. And outside of this pod venture, we'll probably have to have some more podcast conversations about bows so we'll have to everybody tune in with their uh with their thoughts on it but at this point really mark probably do that do that practice evan was talking about i think there's a little practice we gotta do we'll probably go down maybe shoot a little video uh, of that working with evan shooting a little bit but other than that at this point the only thing we have left to do is go on this hunt pray our subaru and, makes it down and, and they're finding a big white <laughs> desert muley right now instead of a coos yeah we're I'm I'm equal opportunity. I'm equal opportunity too. I'm actually very excited about the idea of seeing a coos deer just because I, I haven't ever seen one in, in person before. I've seen They're a muley, but I haven't seen I haven't seen a desert muley, but I've seen a, a muley. But uh, Evan also got to see the Subaru today on the tour. Yep. Thoughts? Think we'll make it? I think you'll do fine. All I right. think it needs a front guard just to change the look of it a little bit. But okay, that's fair. Yeah. So that, way, that way, when you find something, you go chasing through. You hit the cactus, and it doesn't. You know, get up into anything. Yeah, or, that's a that's a good point. Yeah, future plans. I've got some. I've got some future plans for maybe like a full exoskeleton on the on the soup. You know, some some pretty cool stuff. I'm not surprised. I mean, it's got everything but a sink in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> shoot, we forgot a sink. We've got a couple of days. We'll, we'll go to we'll go to yeah the hardware store. <laughs> it's the side it's the side by side of enclosed vehicles. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Evan, call a Sherman instead of a Panzer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, thanks again uh, for joining us on this one, and uh, maybe we'll see you again sometime yeah, soon. And uh, yeah, we'll catch everybody next time. Thanks for everybody for listening as usual, and stay tuned for the rest of this pod venture. We'll see you in Arizona. Thanks, Evan. Yep. Bye. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks everybody for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, 
maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.